and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Porter Podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm Sarah Lombe. I'm here as usual with Leslie Deacon. Hello. <laughs> and we're joined today by our colleague, Sarah Martin-Denham, who's an associate professor at the University of Sunderland. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, I'm this. You're so excited for this. So aren't excited. <laughs> well, we'll get into it. I think... Um, you know, we're really interested to hear about the research that you've done around domestic abuse. And we've got a few questions we'd like to ask you about that. So we'll just start off generally. Can you tell us kind of broadly about the project and how it came about, please? Okay, so I had led some research on school exclusion, so trying to understand the risk and protective factors for school exclusion, which was qualitative, working with children, parents and professionals from education and health and I'd done that commission from um, a local authority and following that commission I was re-approached to do it's an evaluation of the transformation program in social care so I was approached to do that also largely qualitative research it had different had four different um, themes within it one of which was domestic um, abuse support services for men women and children So that was um, a project that I did. It was actually ended up being during COVID, a lot of the the research that was undertaken. So, yeah, that was the commission. It was to evaluate the effectiveness of the transformation programme in a local area. We were just chatting on the way in, weren't we? Because I think it's interesting because you shared your diary with Mm. with us, which we're not going to put on the show notes. But it was just interesting about the fact that you and I were chatting because your background's education and about how emotional some of these stories were that you were hearing from the participants, whereas I was looking at it as a social worker who's kind of been used to these some of these stories because I used to see them all the time, and that was quite challenging for you, wasn't it? Yeah, so I had it with the, with the exclusion, school exclusions research. The conversations with children and parents were really difficult, I think some of it's difficult because of what you're hearing, but it's also like the duty of care that you're carrying during every word. You're aware of every word you're saying and the implications of how something might come across. So I was kind of... I was quite affected by the research on school exclusions, particularly with the children and young people who are sharing like an insight into their world that was probably the, one of the most traumatic periods of their lives. Um, and I... I kind of, because this is social work research, my background is education, I didn't know what I was going to hear until I was in that space with the men and the women. As much as I'd read around, around kind of the area of domestic violence and abuse, I didn't kind of know what I would be stepping into in a way that I did with the previous research. And I haven't got a social work background, so I'd not been exposed to the kind of as a teacher, yes, but not, not to the same extent of, of what I was kind of exploring with the Walking on Eggshells publication. Yeah. So do you want to tell, because I was particularly interested in sort of the 
<clears throat> within that, obviously, it was with um, females. So I, we're going to discuss some of the terminology as well, yeah, aren't we? Because <laughs> um, there was a, an issue with that. So there was um, how many women were there, Sarah? I there was seven women. Yeah. And there was five men. Yeah. Um, there weren't any... Um, there weren't any women at the time in the in the through the gatekeeper who were accessing support, um, domestic violence abuse support services for those that had carried it out. So yeah. there were all men in the group at the yeah. time. So yeah, five men and seven women. Was that that wasn't obviously necessarily your intention? It was just to find people accessing the program, was it? But it was it predominantly men. Who well, we aimed for ten men at the time, but it was mm-hmm. quite challenging recruiting. Yeah. Which is a horrible word. Um, So getting men to take part in a conversation, I think partly because of the stigma around the term perpetrator, which is the thing that I had a few fallouts with people in the kind of social work, social care sector about, because I found that that term quite problematic. And then the women, um, seven women, I think also would maybe aim to have more, but it was just who was able, it was COVID as well. So people yeah. were thrown into a very different life experience at the mm. time. It couldn't be face-to-face, so it was relying on phone or Teams. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was the intention, was to have more than more. we... But we still got a good sample because yeah. we used IPA, which is interpretive phenomenological analysis, which was really hard to say, and I just did that, because um, <laughs> that's a really good method for small groups, yeah. methodology. I think that leads us quite nicely on to talking a little bit about the language. So you just yeah. mentioned that you found the term perpetrator quite problematic. Can you tell us a little bit about why that was? I probably didn't at the start because I, in my in my head I was like, they have per- perpetrated violence against women in, and often in front of children. But they've gone through um, a quite intensive therapy pro- therapeutic programme to change and address and modify and think about and reflect on behaviours. So I was thinking, well, if you've gone through this process, why should you still have such... It's the negative association with the word perpetrator. It's it's the tone of that term and how helpful it is actually for the men who have Mm -hmm. gone through this process, reflected and and hopefully made long-term change. We don't know that it's long-term change. I just felt it was a bit of a criminalised term that should we then, because you've done this thing at this time in your life or for periods of time of your life, should you carry that label perpetrator all the way through? Mm-hmm. Or should yeah. there be a point where you go, look, you did this thing, you know, you've you've done the therapy, you've made your changes, you've rebuilt relationships for those that have. Yeah. I suppose it's the same with people who've been through the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. isn't it? How long do you, do you call them yeah. a criminal? It is a problem. It yeah. is something that comes up in the social work literature, actually, things not specifically about perpetrator, but about labels generally, mm. that they get applied to people. There's a professional construction of that person and what they've done that then will follow them because yeah. it's it's in the records. So I think it's right to reflect on that. Did, did you kind of come to any constructive conclusion about uh, other options or what might work better? Or? I kind of said engaged in domestic violence and abuse. Or, mm, um, yeah. okay. But I did speak to people in the social care field who'd published and some of them got quite cross that I was challenging the use of the term mm. and that I shouldn't because they'd done bad things and and that, that label was the right label. But I do stand by, actually, that 
I, if that yeah. label might prevent access to services, that yeah. was my concern. If you say, like, even now, I went online this morning and looked at similar programmes and it'll say, have you perpetrated or are you a perpetrator of domestic violence and abuse? Come and do this therapeutic programme. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well... They've then got to identify themselves like that. Yeah. I, I, complete, I completely agree with you, Sarah. As, as a practitioner, my experience of working... Um, with men in these situations was that word was a complete barrier to them accessing the services and the most important thing is for them to access that therapeutic support because it's about trying for them to try and understand actually that behavior is problematic and you need to change that behavior because it's not safe for, for your family it's not safe for your partner for the children and for yourself but it was a barrier because they didn't like that especially um they didn't also like words like violence so the domestic Mm. violence because i was constantly being presented by well i haven't hit i haven't hit them i haven't touched them and there's sort of new obviously coercive and controlling behavior is is now becoming more common but only in certain areas and I, i do sympathize as a practitioner as well with you need something just to sort of make attach it to so you know what process you've got to follow but then the danger with that is that you start treating them as a perpetrator and what that then means so I don't think I've got a point with that more just like an expression really it was the same with victim and survivor so I know you meant to say survivor um the women the women that I spoke to were, were describing themselves as victims or are a victim of it, even when they are down the path of receiving support. They're not describing themselves. Maybe it was the, at the point that I yeah. was with yeah. them. They were not identifying as survivors yet. They were still in the midst of struggling with the co- the fact they've got to pay legal fees. They've got to, you know, that they've got all the costs associated with rehoming. So they're still at that point feeling victims of what's happened to them. Yeah. And I think it's trying to represent who they feel they are at that time. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. maybe down the line, hopefully for them all now, they would be describing themselves as um, survivors. I mean, sadly, one of the in, in this transformation programme evaluation, one of my participants actually died, which was something that I didn't expect ever to happen in... Mm-hmm. Um, in a, in a research project and I'd, a few days before I'd had a conversation with them as part of the research and then subsequently found out they were seriously ill and weren't going to survive and like, it's things like that that and that was a lot of what had happened to that person were because of the things that had happened to them in their lives Yeah, and it's just tragic isn't it and it's, yeah. it's like things like when you're doing this type of research Things that you think you're going to be dealing with at the point you do like your ethics application, you're thinking through. I mean, the thinking through for this um, around keeping them safe, particularly where they may still live with yeah. somebody who has done terrible things at that time to them, is how like you can't prepare for everything that, that's mm, going to no, hit you. So no. then it was like, well, I might have the last recording of this person's voice. I actually stopped the interview part way through because a mental health crisis t- team were ringing and, and it could tell that person wasn't well. But it's that whole afterwards in your head, you're thinking, have I done the right thing? Yeah. I mean, they were immediately supported by services. But that's really difficult. And I think as social workers, you 
have that a lot more than people in education. Obviously, teachers, yeah. we deal with families and children all the time, but not on that kind of, like... You're not the front-line the service front to line no. to some to, So you're probably... Yeah. If you'd have done this piece of research, you'd be probably more... Um, I don't even know what the word is. I'm a little bit like, desensitised to some of it. I do feel like that because I had to become like that as a practitioner because otherwise I would have been in tears every single day. Yeah. There were some days I was in tears, definitely. But, yeah, as practitioners, um, you, you do have to because it's it's every day. But I think it's a completely separate thing, but it really does emphasise to me about the differences around um, when, when we're talking about things like safeguarding that that as teachers your your primary role is around this sort of education of those children not around the safeguard of course you're concerned and of course you need to work with it but you don't see that those elements that practitioners see every day like all the time and it just emphasizes to me the sort of understanding we need of our partners (laughs) you know that actually they're not seeing that you know and I, I think reading your diary I was quite sort of that really showed that you dealt with this emotionally something that a practitioner would have to become desensitized to to a some extent not to the point where you think you, you know you're not going to care about what happens because of course you do but you have to deal with it but it's quite it's quite a lot and I was just wondering if it, what that raised for me um Sarah as well is around the kind of ethics of of the safety for you in in dealing with that was that sort of in the ethics application that you... Um, it was strange because it was COVID. So yeah. originally I, I I bought a separate... Obviously at the time I would have, if it hadn't been COVID, I'd have gone and met with them and had a coffee with them and yeah. couldn't do that. So it was on the phone and I was like, actually, I can't use my phone for this because yeah. of who I'm speaking to. Um, so I, the university provided a, a phone for research, which was great because it's a completely separate number turned off location settings it's things like you don't think of really because in your in my head as well I suppose I'm thinking I'm interviewing these five men who've we know are on this program you know they've done these things and I'm doing it from my home yeah which felt a bit odd because this is going to sound really strange I know they're not in your home but you're having a conversation with my children who ran because it's covid so I'm in a separate room Mm -hmm. and you don't kind of know and I know some of them have had a criminal history because of what they've done. And you don't know what you're going to hear. No. And you're really overthinking, like, how you were going to show care and empathy f- for them, whilst at the same time, I'd obviously I'd read into the fact that they could become coercive with me during the conversation. So how you keep your mind thinking about what you need to ask, what you need to find out, whilst watching for, mm. listening mm. for things... Like you probably do really easily as part of your training, um, but it, yeah, it was it was challenging. I think during any kind of research like this, with a really hard to reach group of people yeah. who's underrepresented in research because of the nature of it, yeah, was really really hard, but but important. But you write about the the diary. I kept a little diary because. I'd noticed that if I did two or three conversations in a day or interviews with these people, the night before, I wouldn't sleep well, and the night after. And it, it was the same with the research on school exclusions. But you feel like you're carrying, you carry them. And there was one um, lady I spoke to who, she was actually on maternity leave at the time, 
and she had she was telling me that she had no food in the cupboards she had nowhere she'd had nowhere for the baby to sleep and she was hungry and it was just that evening it's in, you know I'm happy for any of this to be published by the way the, the diary bits but but then you finish work and you've had that conversation you go into your house and you've got full cupboards you've got your fire on your children are happy and you think I want to send them money and you mm. can't send the money, but you're thinking, how can I? So then, obviously, at the end of the call with that particular person, I'd asked if I could seek support, if I could have permission to go and find some support for that person mm. to get them food in the cupboards, which I, of course, did. Mm. But it's social workers deal with that all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you do it? It's <laughs> like, oh, God, how do you, like, how do you close your brain at the end of a day? I'm sure you can't fully, but... No, I couldn't have sustained hearing these conversations. And I only did 12, let's be honest. And I remember them now. And when I replay them, I'm back in the room. So mm. as social workers, I think you're incredible to have that as your, like... Just every day. Every day of <laughs> life. Yeah. But I think, because one of the challenges that, the, that practitioners face when they're doing research is to switch off the, the social worker. Because the social worker would be analysing and questioning. And I think what's important about your research and, and why this kind of research is important is, that, is to give, is they do need to, to share their voice. And they need that to be not judged or questioned. They need to be accepted. Because for me, it's about... With research being authentic, it needs to. We want. I'm really interested in preventative work in early intervention work. In order to do that, does mean that you've got to have these kind of conversations like you had with with these men because it's so important to understand. Well, how how could the services help them, and how maybe can this be prevented? Because obviously, with those, you're hoping that they then don't go on to have those challenges in another family environment. So I think one of the men you were saying that, that they'd come because they'd been in their previous relationship, they'd been abusive within that. And that's so important that, that you find a way to see the person first in order to then listen to them, to then try and have the services that help them because that then helps the children and it helps the, the other family members. Mm. Yeah, it's the only way, isn't it? I mean, yeah. some of them had been mandated, like they've been told by Catholics, you have to yes. go and do this. Yeah. So they were driven by access to children. But actually, when they started the programme, I think often, like you said earlier, they, unless it was a physical physical violence, mm. they didn't necessarily see it as domestic yeah. abuse. They were like, well, I didn't I didn't hit them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the women as well saying, well, he never hit me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's that same kind of thinking but actually through the course through the the um the program they were able to reflect and think i mean they did some of them did see parts of it like um sexual abuse as not relevant and quite uncomfortable because well i didn't do that one so i don't need to know about that but then i think as a whole really appreciated the difference and actually the biggest strategy that talk about would be time out like you'd imagine with like young children having a time but taking themselves off for a like recognising in themselves, hang on, this could escalate. I, I need to remove myself from the situation, which is really positive. Yeah. I think what we need to be careful is if over time it doesn't become, well, I'm going to take myself into time out, when actually they're not. They just decided they need to go off and have some 
tab themselves for a few hours. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I could, yeah. Yeah, but, but I think really it was positive, positive though, wasn't it? That that they um, from the, in the research they talked about how they'd started to identify strategies and started to understand that it was around this sort of coercive and controlling behaviour, which you, not everybody knows about. This research knows about it, practitioners know about it, but but people in the community don't. So they they there is something that needs to be done to try and. Educate. I think they mentioned about they should be in schools, didn't they? Yeah, they what they did in the curriculum in yeah in secondary particularly. Yeah, and it is domestic abuse is in the yeah in the in the curriculum. I think it's getting reviewed, but also for me the the, the whole fact they're in a group. I was surprised that they really liked being in group therapy yeah. around this and meeting other people in mm-hmm. similar situations, but definitely the early intervention the sooner we can get this available I think what they also wanted as soon as they were told you're going to have to do this program they wanted it instantly and it's yeah. not instant so it's I suppose it's around how we get that funding and some of the men said everybody should be getting this every person should be getting it yeah. and actually them recommending it to friends and spotting like doing their shopping one talked about spotting a couple and identifying recognising thinking I know what's happening there mm, and yeah. they need to go on the programme which we've got to get away to get um, to get more people aware of it being there I mean one of the, the men was really keen to be like the poster poster boy right. he's like get me on billboards and wherever mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell everybody how great this has been so I mean that's a really positive impact yeah. for somebody to go through something and say they want to do that yeah is positive yeah really positive um so we've sort of moved on to talking about some of the findings sorry yeah leapt in and no no it's fine it's good it's yeah. interesting um I was just wondering with what you're saying because one of your objectives was about identifying processes that support participants to access services because you're saying about they're wanting to kind of they're saying lots of people should do this but what did you find out in terms of things that might support people into these so what the women said was i think women know more that there are domestic abuse services they don't necessarily know how to get into them but once they're in them they're great it was more with the men i think Mm. for the men it's or obviously it could be women also in their situation it's how how do we know that this program even exists Mm -hmm. Like do do people yeah. generally know that there's they'll know there's support for so they have to women. be referred into it the men is that how they it can self refer it yeah. they can mm-hmm. be recommended like a social worker could say we yeah. recommend you this program or mandated mm-hmm. to say yeah. you need to do this or it's not even going to go to court yeah You're not I had get anywhere I had that as a practitioner that I that it was a part of a sort of a child protection plan we would say actually you need to attend this program but the problem is with mandated or need it can change their you know why they're doing it most of them talked around that they actually decide to engage with it and take it on board absolutely rather than tick the box of maybe showing up yeah I mean what would have been interesting would have been at the time two had completed I think three were underway of doing the program they were like midpoint ish um and it's had it's had a positive effect that that's shown in the research that it has been positive it would be interesting to do something further along the line to have followed them and said you know how are things it would be interesting to, to go back that. if you if you could do yeah, like yeah. some more sleepless nights for you Sarah, but yeah. well I'd, I'd now rub you to it ah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's 
Do we do this thing? Yeah. yeah, I think that would like does it sustain? Does the impact? What we don't know is if the impact. Mm. So have they not evaluated that the service themselves? I don't think anybody local. has at the moment. Yeah. The service have got. Um, and on the service, I went on one service, another local therapy who used the same program, and mm-hmm. they've got like a an Excel sheet you can click on. And you can see all the feedback. Yeah, you can see about thirty five people who've accessed their feedback. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody at the moment is looking at the long term. Mm-hmm. Like what's happening later? Because okay. I was saying that to the uh, social workers I was teaching the other day, the practitioners about how you know, in order to know that we've succeeded, we don't ever want to see people again. You don't want customers coming back, kind of thing. So the idea is obviously, hopefully, that they yeah. don't come back and that they're still mm-hmm. enacting those sort of strategies and that they're successful in that. Mm-hmm. That's what you kind of would want to see. Because I think it was one person in it they hadn't kind of accepted it all or yeah 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 there was there was some denial there saying there's two sides to every story and Mm. yeah and I think it's the whole thing that if it's if it's not a physical yeah and that's just a change of mindset needed everywhere everywhere you know yeah that's come up actually in a few of the conversations we've had about domestic abuse hasn't it that it's it's harder for people to wrap their heads around or understand it or recognize it and sometimes from both sides you know, people might just think, oh, that's part of the relationship and not realise that it's actually abusive yeah. behaviour. I mean, it's the impact for the children, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like you imagine where there's like that toxic trio in a family and you think like this domestic abuse is a substance misuse and there's, the, there's um, mental health of parents is in yeah. decline. For children growing up in that environment, I mean, there were some examples in the publication where children have had to ring 999 that was a 15-year-old had to ring the 999 mm. um and you just and, and like another family where they had to get up and leave on you know just before christmas eve i think it was yeah and it's it's really hard and yeah. it's how we but it's how you identify isn't it, it it's education it's health yeah. it's it's social care everybody kind of the preventative mm-hmm. is where we need to get to it yeah. is, which is where the challenges are because that requires resources yeah. and it requires an understanding that actually early intervention and investment in that and especially around the right professionals to do things because obviously there are services but then they're not necessarily the specialists. It's more the universal element that's there first. Mm-hmm. But actually, I mean, I, I like the idea that actually this, this, do, this it needs a cultural shift around an understanding of these relationships. So I think the education side is where it does mm-hmm. need to start but mm-hmm. we're talking about a generation before we can see any of that sort of coming through in relationships aren't we? I think the other thing as well in schools is who's teaching yeah. the, the young people the children young people mm. in schools about domestic abuse, Yes, like who's doing that Yeah, is it no disrespect to teachers and teaching assistants but have they got the experience to be teaching that so Mm -hmm. um, training around preparing schools like really it should be social work coming in not that you haven't got enough on um no but i think training in schools understand the issues in depth yeah that makes sense yeah because it's sort of the researchers with that level of knowledge and then it's the practitioners with this is what it looks like this is how we sort of see it and i think Mm. that's the challenge is that everybody's being sort of expected to take on more and more responsibility but actually if you don't have the sort of knowledge and experience and skill set to deal with that it it can be dangerous because it's that you're not then 
putting the right messages across and things like mm-hmm. that. The same as it's not up to then the social workers to be doing the teaching. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's acknowledging the expertise of the professionals, really, isn't it? And also approaching it in the right way to keep the children safe in yeah. those conversations too because you don't know what they might have experienced or even if they don't have any personal experience how they might react to learning about that kind of content so that all needs to be quite carefully very carefully managed managed. just talking about social workers because you you mentioned some of the key services that your participants accessed alongside the one that you were looking at specifically and I was just wondering if they had much if anything to say about social work and social work involvement in their lives they're a bit scared of social workers and it's yeah. stigma. Yeah. It, On it, both mm-hmm. the, the victim survivors and the... Yeah, I think, I think yeah. particularly the women mm. were worried that if they went to social, social workers and yeah. said, this is what's happening in our whole household, that I think there's a, a quote from a parent, like they're going to come raging in and take my children away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, this perception that they're going to be seen as weak... Or, um, or why didn't you just tell them to leave? Or why haven't you left? Mm-hmm. And the implications of keeping their children with them. Yeah, yeah. And also knowing that, and you can see it when you read the publication, that the women are left to pick up all the pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In their minds, so mm-hmm. they might have to move home. They've got children leaving their bedrooms, their belongings. They've got maybe moving to a new area, new schools, all the legal expenses all of that falls to the women so I think their worry is that the social workers will react by removing children that's, yeah. that, that's their default Yeah. where actually you know there were positive experiences of social workers mm-hmm. turnover of social workers obviously you like teaching yeah. there's lots, there's lots, um, lots yeah. of movement in the profession but yeah that was their main concern and often you know, a barrier yeah. yeah I mean that's a huge that's not a new a no. new thing. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. social workers don't That's just the have a good reputation. No, we hear about yeah. all the times it's gone wrong. We don't hear about the positive work no. that they do every day. I'm just wondering, do you know, did you get any sense from your participants about where that fear came from? Was it any kind of personal experience that fed into it or was it that just wider perception of it's just a wider work? it's yeah. just a wider perception and the same mm-hmm. with the police actual actually yeah. Yeah. and also they don't think the criminal justice system Mm-hmm. Like the, there's a, an example where one of the women says in court that um, there was a text where he, was, he had a knife at her throat. He was going to take a knife to her throat. And the judge said, oh, well, that doesn't really matter because they put LOL on the end, so they didn't mean it. And it's little examples wow. like that that they've shared mm-hmm. that's like, so that they don't all have trust that no. they will be kept safe. I mean, on, but on the flip side, another one had rang 999 Christmas Eve, but then panicked and hung up. Mm-hmm. The police still turned out mm-hmm. and got the got the, the partner to leave. Yeah. But he came back. Yeah. So there's all of this... I think it's recognition. Obviously, the impact on the parents is, is huge, but the children in these yeah. households. Mm. And it's how you connect it, isn't it? How, how yeah. that gets back to the schools to say yeah. there's been this incident with this family. Because all the teachers will see if they don't have that information is that child maybe not... It's not quite not engaging quite, that day. Yeah, not quite yeah. as they would, would have yeah. been the week before. Yeah. There's but, a lot of fear in that in yeah. what you've just described, isn't there? It's not just about what's happening to them in the home, but it's the fear for what will happen to the children and, and that lack of trust in services and what's going to happen if they engage with 
services. Yeah, and if you imagine if you've got children in three schools, three different schools, you've got an infant, a junior, mm. a prime, and a secondary age, and you have to move area, mm-hmm. yeah. it's huge disruption. It is, yeah. It's mm-hmm. ma- not only the children leaving, leaving a father because... The children love both parents, yeah. You know, regardless often <clears throat> of what's happened, mm-hmm. and it's a huge upheaval. And the mother at that same point thinking, I, I'm, and also the financially often financially dependent mm-hmm. on yeah. the person to pay the bills and do these things. I think, well, if I go, I, like, I've, how do I've they got afford? no income. Yeah. I've got no, and that's a huge, huge pressure. And then obviously going through the, how do you tell people, mm-hmm. and how will social work react? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there tends to be a point with all of them where they just go, "Enough is enough. I, c- I can no longer." Yeah. Well, you'll know that from yeah. from your work. I can no longer carry on, and then yeah. they just have to go. Mm-hmm. That was in in one of our other podcasts. I think it was Angie was talking about the. We were discussing about the issue of how it's always then that it's almost focused on the victim, for want of a better word, that they are the ones that are having to move rather mm-hmm. than keeping the the again, for want of a better word, perpetrator, out of the way mm-hmm. and keeping them away. And, and yeah, as, as practitioners, it, it, there is a focus on then the mother to keep the children safe. And I was talking to a, group, a room full of practitioners the other day and doing interviews with new students, and it's all about, you know, the, that image of the, the child snatcher, you know, almost like the chitty-chitty-bang-bang child snatcher who comes along and takes children. And that is the re- that is how people perceive it and what I was emphasizing to the practitioners is the reality is that ultimately you can you do have the power not just you but the the mechanisms of law are behind you to be to actually allow you to do it so it's to to remove people's children from their care so therefore it's understandable why there is an impression because actually you can so it's it's like working with the reality and working mm-hmm. with those those people around, that is where social workers have to start, that that is the impression people have of them. And mm-hmm. then through hopefully their actions, they then show, actually, I'm here to try and help. I want to try and help you. But I, th- I don't think we've kind of got the balance right yet. Yeah, I think there's some of that same fear in adult safeguarding as well, even when there aren't children involved, that there's a fear that the social worker's coming in to intervene in a way that people aren't going to want. That yeah. They're not here to help, they're here to mess and do something that I'm not going to like and... That can be quite a barrier, can't it? To it's tough. We have the expression "damned if you do" and "damned if you don't" in social work. Yeah, it seems appropriate. Yeah. yeah. I was quite interested in um, the findings regarding the women, and if you can tell us a bit about that, but particularly around your theme about becoming empowered and what did that mean, and how did that come about for the women? I think at the point they make the decision to seek help enough's enough at that point and they're at an all time low so they're worried about social work coming in, they're mm-hmm. worried about their children and the changes in children's behaviours they're worried about them and their mental health, their finances and the empowerment seems to come once they, it was Wearside Women in Need that they, they go to them that suddenly the realisation, and I'm sure this is what Wearside Women in Need are doing, they're, they're kind of telling them and telling them and telling them it's not your fault, it's not your fault Mm-hmm. And I think through that realizing actually they can they can take control of a situation they they can change things, and it felt like like we sort of need to kind of put in huge arms around them, mm-hmm. and not just being there for the time having their counselling session or working with them, 
but being able to contact at any time mm-hmm. and helping with things like housing or is you know preventing escalation of things happening just being like they talk about mother figures mm-hmm. and just having somebody there who's going to catch you when you fall mm-hmm. yeah and the empowerment i think came through that you know their realization well actually i can leave them or we can put them through this program or I can help my children by doing this. Yeah. I can move out of my house. I can't, yeah. Tr- yeah. you know, that so, empowerment of them thinking, actually, I have got some control in my life, yeah. which maybe they haven't had. I think that's that came through really strongly, but took yeah. time yeah. to get to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the lady I spoke about who was on maternity leave and had nothing... She wasn't at the empowerment stage. No. She was at the, this is horrendous, this is my life, mm-hmm. living hand-to-mouth stage. Yeah. yeah. But I think eventually the the other women kind of hit that point of actually knowing that things could change for the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, yeah, it's understandable, isn't it, when, when they are likely to have felt very powerless and had a lot of control taken from them by by the situations they were in that that would have been a big impact to start to realize that there was control that they could have over yeah and it'd been over time hadn't it? it's not like suddenly mm. something had happened there'd been incidents over time yeah so they'd kind of got used to it mm-hmm. I don't mean used to it that sounds really probably really offensive sorry I don't mean they got used to it they became accepting the, of it that's the, what yeah. I meant to say yeah accepting of it yeah. and then suddenly they're like like there's an example where it, it was, you know, Christmas Eve and they'd brought loads of people back to the house and there was drugs and there was alcohol and children were mm-hmm. upset and just go, do you know what, no. Mm. And so it's the same thing came out in some research that I did about domestic abuse where they talked about they'd lived with it for years and it just got to the point one day and they had been in touch with services, one of the women, and been told, oh, you should leave and, and had resisted that and then just got to the point where she was like, I, one day I just had had enough. Yeah, and, like and the final about, straw. Yeah, yeah, which is why it's so important for it to be their decision because yeah. you know the, the, those women know when it's the right time yeah. for them. It can't be something that's pushed because, uh, as we no. said, it's them that has to to leave everything if they're removing yeah, themselves from that situation. Yeah, because they've got to acknowledge the the so what they're experiencing as abusive and as problematic mm. as well. Because I, I talked to a practitioner recently who was reflecting on the fact that they they felt that because someone had said had said no there's no domestic abuse in this relationship and then later it turned out there was this Mm. practitioner felt that they'd been lied to but was then reflecting on it's not about that it was actually about the the fact that this woman didn't see it as that Mm -hmm. and that's where practitioners have to be quite careful it's not this simple thing yeah yeah that was quite common so some of them would like they'd even say to me during the conversation well you know mine wasn't that bad really didn't hit me Mm. yeah like you know so I'm not sure I should have gone really at the time because it wasn't as bad as what you see on the telly Mm. so this perception I suppose through media isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah um, the same as the perception of what social workers yeah. do. Not as being well, beaten to the ground means yeah. it's actually not that. I got off, you know, man wasn't so bad really. Yeah. Yeah. And that normalising of some of that controlling and coercive behaviour as well. I think it was again that conversation with Angie, I think, where yeah. she was talking about. Um, you know, you can put trackers, track people on their phones and things like that, or going always going to pick them up somewhere because, mm. and that could be someone being kind or it could be actually quite controlling and you know sometimes people don't sort of see the distinction or don't recognize it for what it is yeah 
and yeah absolutely yeah i i was sort of interested in how because there is that that issue um of supporting men to access support and i was interested because they they were sort of seeing as it was like an impact on their masculinity that it was like if you access it you're weak and i just wonder if you tell us a bit more how they talked about that yeah there was one who I think he'd shared it with his employer that he was he was going to go and, yeah. and he said, oh, you go to the naughty lads class. Um, and I think he'd had an expectation that in the in the group there would be, everyone would have tattoos and like, I think he said like teardrops oh. on their face. They'd oh, like, 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 pris- like prisoners yeah. for, yeah. Um, <laughs> like an expectation from them about who these people would be like who'd done mm-hmm. these things. So not seeing themselves as Not that. identifying no. as part of that at all. But actually, what was surprising because I thought at the time I thought oh, a finding might be that actually they don't want group work; they'd, they'd rather have like one to one. But they seem to thrive with sharing experiences about their families and and the situations and where they were in the court process as well. Mm. For many of them, yeah. But yeah, I think you wouldn't imagine. I don't think that group therapy for this group of men would work mm-hmm. I suppose that's probably an assumption but for this group it did it, it was really were they part of the same effect. group yeah right okay. oh no they, the men, no. no they were in different groups different they'd all groups. been in groups so two, yeah, right two but not the same one hadn't yet not, yeah. not the same but were they all yeah. heterosexual relationships yes yeah they were the ones that took part in this study yeah mm. they yeah. were yeah some had I think one had remained with a partner and most of them had got new partners mm-hmm. and were no longer living with the women, fortunately, as part of this as well, were no longer living with the person because mm-hmm. that ethically mm-hmm. I had scripts. I had to create scripts from the World Health Organization yeah. guidance mm-hmm. to make sure that the real worry, I suppose, I'm backtracking a bit here, was yeah. um, keeping them safe because what if, because it's on the phone... Yeah, someone sat next to them. Yeah, you don't so, know who might be there controlling yeah. what so they're saying like or listening. When acting as a gatekeeper, but what would be the time when you would be alone? Yeah, mm-hmm. but then having codes, which would mean yeah. you do different. Yeah, really, really complicated to do research in this area, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep them safe because what you absolutely really don't want is to cause any. No, any well, harm. no, you don't want to cause harm, do you? But it's really important. Research though, so we do need yeah. to find a way to manage these kinds it's of like things. It's like the self care bit. So I know with a lot of the women and the men actually, this was weird. Like weird for me at the start is, I got to know them through text first before we went anywhere near the conversation. Mm. I had permission to text them, mm-hmm. so I'm sat texting the women, which is fine. They're sharing photos of children's artwork and all sorts, and the men. Yeah. And that felt a bit like I can feel it like my body. <laughs> you feel a bit like oh, I've got a text from, you know. And yeah. you're texting these in your house on an evening, this yeah. fire a text over, and you go, oh, yeah, do you want to chat tomorrow? Should we set up a time? And it's perfectly friendly and lovely. But, like, to build, to try and build, not a relationship, but some kind of knowing each other a little bit before yeah. you ring up and say, we're going to talk about this really difficult thing now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to build that. And then also afterwards, texting all, all of them, are you okay? Do you need to, you know? Do you need any support services? Yeah. yeah. And that aftercare for all of them. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of histories, to make sure that they're all safe and well and not affected by. Yeah. Being part of this yeah. because yeah. it's 
I think it is a hard thing to talk about. And I yeah. know during the conversation with the men, me trying to broach the subject of domestic abuse on the phone. Yeah. And answer really difficult questions. You're kind of saying it and you're like, you kind of got your hands over your head thinking, oh, I can't believe I'm actually asking you this. Mm-hmm. But it's the only way we're going to learn, isn't it? Yeah. About how to do things better. Absolutely. It's by asking those difficult questions. Sorry, Absolutely. I got completely sidetracked. No, I That's think all right. it's, it's all, <laughs> yeah, it's all good to hear about. And I think you're right. And, and I think, you know, there can be a kind of um, bit of paternalism around this kind of research in terms of engaging with people and you know I think if people want to come and speak to you about their experiences and share that then I think it's important to give them that opportunity Um, as long as it's done carefully as as you've talked (laughs) about Um, so I think just a few wrapping up questions then just last little bits Um, what recommendations did you make to the local authority off the basis of the research I think the key one was combining so at the moment you've got services for men mm-hmm. over here, you've got services for women and you've got services for children Yeah. and I felt that if you could get to a point where some, say a woman or someone who'd experienced abuse could be a man, could be you yeah. know, someone who's non-binary, experiences something they can go to a service and that service automatically is part of the process mm-hmm. Yeah. supports and finds and signposts whether it's part of that service or separate yeah. to the other organisations, yeah. for the other people, for the siblings as well, like what happens to children and siblings in that kind of, you mm. know, because you might have blended families where actually yeah. there's a family over there that no one's actually involved with, but those children come on a weekend. So yeah. I suppose it was around looking at the service structure and continuing to fund both. Yeah. yeah. The big programme, we said, because they're doing fantastic work. Um, training for social workers around... Just around all the issues kind of raised in in the report and I don't know how we address the stigma. You're right, like mm. they do have that legal power mm-hmm. to, to do that. Yeah. But also around publicising yeah. and making sure that people are aware of these services and they exist. And also recognising if you're in a situation where it is abusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were the, the kind of key recommendations that were made that we need to keep funding this work and also the preventive work, preventative work around spotting the signs that it's happening in families and asking those kind of difficult questions yeah. in a way yeah. that's not like demonising them mm-hmm. or yeah. suggesting they're weak or, you know, in a support. I was just sure social workers do that, but... Yeah, it's a strength-based approach rather yeah. than coming in and saying there's something wrong with you and yeah. this isn't right and, yeah. How can I help? Is everything OK? Yeah. That type of... Yeah. 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 What about um specifically for social workers? Do you have any kind of recommendations or key messages? I know it's not your practice area, it's but not anything that you, <laughs> that you think would be useful for social workers. I think workers it's hard for social workers. I think you you like teachers, different but both similar issues in both professions of burnout and leaving yeah. and moving on, retention, yeah. recruitment, all of those things. Mm-hmm. I think it's finding the time that which I'm sure you're all doing accessing training yeah uh, is the time in in once you're a qualified social worker opportunities to access training it's mandatory actually isn't it and it is the and just mm-hmm. I, I suppose thinking about how you come across mm-hmm. to a family 
But I suppose it's quite hard if you're the ninth social worker or the tenth social worker and you're going in again yeah. and you're another face. And it's it's, it's really asking the right questions in a way that's comforting yeah. and supportive, which yeah. you will be doing. I don't really feel like I'm in a position to give social work at any time. <laughs> these, these are all important messages, but you're right, that is, well, we would hope all social well, that's work should be, yeah, there will be that's the idea. A lot of the issues, the problem is a lot of them are structural issues that individual social workers don't have the power to address. You know, because mm. talking about the fact that multiple social workers coming in, that's not a social worker's no. fault. That's an issue with retention and resourcing and... I, I think they can get. Like, I mean, I, like I said, I've been working with practitioners, so I'm doing some of the the CPD continuing professional development. Realise shouldn't use acronyms, but the, I've been doing a lot more of that because there's a bigger push towards that, and I am trying to sort of raise some of these issues because I think what does happen is that social workers can get lost in doing the job. And having the opportunity to step out and think, am I actually seeing that person or am I seeing a perpetrator or am I seeing a victim, you know, rather than the the person that is in front of me. And I Mm -hmm. I just did a session on that the other other day with them because actually unintentionally they can lose sight a little bit of, of, you know, they need to be remind themselves to Mm -hmm. reconnect with their values about why did I come into this? Mm -hmm. What am I doing? Because similar, like you're saying, with the resources issue, it just means they're under fire the whole time. And time came up on our previous podcast series, wasn't it? About having the time to reflect is really difficult for everybody. And I think it's the word perpetrator. And and it's all over the internet. Even now I'm looking at this morning looking at therapeutic support services and it's have you perpetrated are you a perpetrator of and you think if you're a social worker going in and you use that language Mm -hmm. I think people are just going to go like there there was one of the women I asked about it so in the interviews with the women I asked them about that word because I thought is it just me that's this is really not sitting with and she was like no if you use that word it won't go Mm. yeah they they won't I think there's a lot of problematic and contested language that's used in social work and it does get talked about but there never seems to be because you you need an answer don't you because you need a I think I remember your session on on um questioning like vulnerable is a questionable term as well isn't it and then you've got the realities of practice which is okay I just need to know what process I need to follow so Mm -hmm. it's almost like you need a a tag for want of a better word and then but the tag becomes a a label which then becomes something that you then Mm. treat the person that's the problem it's the labeling isn't it but you need something to say okay yes I know what that is I can do all of these processes Mm -hmm. now and it's tough. <laughs> yeah, we haven't come up with an answer. Who have engaged in domestic abuse. Like, you've engaged in it, you've done it. Yeah, because like, I would say experienced than, about the Yeah, the same. Like, so experienced. is a more active yeah, word. Active, like, engaged. You've done this thing at yeah. this point. Yeah. Difficult. Very difficult. I do <laughs> empathise. Honestly, I don't know how you listen to this in your your role and recover. And you're not, is it not even about you, is it? It's about them. <laughs> No, but I think it's important to acknowledge that we've had a lot of conversations in yeah, the pod, the in the outside of the podcast yeah. about emotions in research yeah. because we do as researchers we put all our attention into thinking about the people that we're going to be engaging with as part of our research projects and the ethics is geared up to that as well but we don't think as much about ourselves no. and how we're reacting and responding and what we might need to manage that and it is a conversation that needs to be had and it's right to raise it and 
you know, we need to support yeah. each other. Don't I we? think as it came up in conversation, you know, we had um, Walls End Children's Community come in, one of mm. our colleagues, Emma Agar, who I was supporting on a, on a research project. It was, she hadn't experienced, she was looking at emergency response grants. So, mm. and then it, the issue of, domestic, of indirect domestic abuse occurred as one of the reasons why these people were needing to access it. So it was a complete surprise. And then when I was supporting it, I'm so used to that, I had to remind myself that actually for her, mm-hmm. this was actually quite a shock. This was new, you know, mm-hmm. new experience of dealing with that. And I think there is a desensitised element of <laughs> practitioners mm-hmm. because you have to be. Um, same in, you know, the medical profession as well. They have to become desensitised to a certain extent, but it, it does mean sometimes I think we need to remind ourselves a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So do social workers have, do you have, like, a, like do you have somebody? Do you have counsellors and do you have... No, they no. have supervision, but okay. it does tend to be case supervision. There's an element, it's very much dependent on, on the managers as to how much of that would be about the sort of emotional aspects of, of cases mm. and, and how that's right. impacting on the social workers. So I think there's um, one of our colleagues is, is looking at, um, no, not one, because one of them is you, Sarah, a few of our colleagues, <laughs> trauma-informed um, a practice and, and trying to sort of support practitioners more around that. So um, because actually there's a lot of elements that just are not really recognised that, you know, we do need emotional support as well and that burnout issue is is there it's difficult mm. I, I talking to um a colleague the other day was saying that actually they can't get experienced practitioners to come to their local authority what they get is newly qualified who then leave mm. you know they come they do they do that period of time then they go because it, the pressure of it and and dealing with that every day and and for me it was actually the responsibility that's what I struggled with: feeling responsible mm-hmm. for getting it right, feeling like I, the it's on me. Consequences are so huge yeah. if you don't. But actually, I think yeah. it, it falls to the social. It should be multi-agent. It should, but, but it is the social it's worker. The social worker that yeah. gets looked to. You well, because they're the lead. as well publicly. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's awful, isn't it? Just, anyway, we're going off. Yeah, no. It's become a therapy Sorry. session. <laughs> well, I love therapeutic. With you all, you should have all the counselling. <laughs> And all the support. Well, it would be great if it was better funded social care generally. More money, that's going to be our primary. (laughs) Ultimately, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? It's about the fact that it's under-resourced in the same Mm. way that that teaching's under-resourced, nursing, social care, everything is (laughs) under-resourced at the minute. And then the pressure on everybody to keep performing at this Mm. level is really tough. It is tough. Well... Sarah, thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to say about the research or anything no, else that you want in the podcast? Be lovely. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much thank for coming you. in and giving up your time because I know okay. how busy you are. It's appreciated. So that's it then for today and we will sign off. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. You have been listening to The Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr. Sarah Lombay. And Dr. Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find full transcripts of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye.